If you would, please turn with me as we continue our way. I want you to grab two different passages this morning. We're obviously continuing our way through the Gospel of Matthew, so we're going to be in Matthew 16 as per normal, as per usual. But uh, I think it would be helpful for us to look at the complementary account that is given for us in the Gospel of Mark. So in addition to Matthew 16, looking at verses 21 to 23 today, I also want you to grab Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Well, the reason for this is because Matthew and Mark, they're, they're telling the same story, obviously. They're telling the same account of Christ, but they're telling it from slightly different perspectives. And their books, both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, are written and directed towards particular audiences. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and his goal there primarily, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is to convince Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark's gospel is not directed primarily to a Jewish audience. Mark's gospel is directed to just anyone and everyone. He's writing for Jews, he's writing for Gentiles. Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four gospels to be written and recorded. And so Mark's gospel is there just to give out the bare-bone facts. Both Matthew and Mark follow the same chronology of events. For example, you come to the Gospel of John, you'll find that John structures the material in his Gospel more thematically. But Matthew and Mark follow the same chronology of events. Matthew's focus being to try and convince Jewish readers that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the foretold chosen one. And again, Mark's purpose is just to get the facts out there. So we're going to see something in Mark's Gospel which Matthew omits because it's not a part of his ultimate purpose, but which is very, very helpful for us today. So if you would, please look with me. Matthew chapter 16. We'll come to verses 21 to 23, and then we're going to go over to Mark chapter 8, and then we'll begin to get to work and unpack the text. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Verse 22 is unique to Matthew. It tells us something that we don't find in Mark. So pay attention to verse 22. Verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside, and the Greek here is the strongest possible word. He's not just kind of gently chiding him. It says, Peter took him aside, so he says, Jesus, get over here. They kind of go over to the side, and it says that Peter rebuked him, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, which is a very powerful idiomatic expression in their language. He's saying, this is not God's will. This is the most extreme form for Peter to be using to say to Jesus, point blank, you're wrong. So he says, he rebukes him and he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now go with me to Mark chapter 8. Now, we've looked, the last several weeks, we looked very carefully at the great revelation that the Father made to Peter when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and then the teaching on the church and how the church is built out of that confession, that revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're going to backtrack a little bit because Mark includes something here that isn't included in any of the other four Gospels, which is illustrative of what is going on here. In one instance, Peter, Peter says, 
you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he gets praised for it. Good job. Awesome. The Father revealed this to you. And in the very next instance, he says, Jesus, you're wrong. You don't go and die and suffer and get raised on the third day. That's not the plan. In which Jesus then says, you're Satan. Okay? Good job, Satan. Okay? So you see here, and then maybe you find yourself in this position, take encouragement. One of the greatest saints that has ever lived was prone to get it wrong a time or two. But I want to backtrack, and I want to show you something here in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. There are two words that are used uh, to refer to miracles. The pri primary word is dunamis, and it's a reference more to the supernatural power of God. He's breaking into the natural world, and he's doing something supernatural beyond what is natural. We've seen this multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew. The second word that is used is semion. This is the one that's used, matter of fact, is used exclusively in the Gospel of John. John will refer to the miracles of Jesus as signs. Semion means sign. The point being that in every miracle is not just a demonstration of power, there's a message in the miracle. Mark includes in his telling of the gospel account a miracle that has a message in it because this is a very unique miracle and he records it as preceding the events that happened to Peter in which in one instance Peter is praised and said, good job, the Father revealed this to you. And in the next instance, he's rebuked and told that he's in line with Satan. Look at what he says. Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, these people in Bethsaida who bring their buddy along, they know about Jesus. They know that all that needs to really happen here is that Jesus just touches this guy, and he'll be healed. In fact, Jesus doesn't even have to touch him. We've seen before that Jesus can just say a word, and it will happen just like that. He doesn't have to be anywhere near the person. He doesn't even have to know that the person is in need of his help. You recall the account from Luke when the woman with the discharge comes up and just says, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, I know I will be healed. And Jesus turns around and says, I know power has gone out from me, who touched me, and he's, he's looking for that. So these guys bring the, their buddy along from Bethsaida, and he's blind. Now, he wasn't born blind. We know that he had sight at some point in time, because as Jesus begins to incrementally heal him, he responds that he sees men, but they look like trees. So he has some understanding of what a man ought to look like, and he knows what a tree ought to look like. And so Jesus does this healing in two stages. They bring their buddy along from Bethsaida. They bring their buddy along. They present him to Jesus. Jesus takes him out of the city. It says in verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand. So he's touching him, but the blind man is not healed. He takes him out of the city. It says he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now this miracle is recorded only here in this sequence of events by Mark. And in terms of miracles, when looking at every other miracle in the Gospels that Jesus did, this is the only one in which his healing happens by degrees. He is incrementally healed. Every other time you see Jesus doing something miraculous, healing somebody, it's instantaneous. There's no stages or degrees or variations of healing. This is a completely unique event in the ministry of Christ. Takes this guy out of the city, he spits on him, next verse, took him out of the city, led him by the hand, and he had, when he had spit on his eyes 
and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, the man looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. In other words, I see something. Jesus' question is very broad. Do you have any vision at all? Yeah, I got some vision. I can see something. I see what I think are men moving around, but they look like trees. And for those of you who have eyeglasses, you know, you've gone to the eye doctor and they've got that chart up on the wall and he says, okay, read the chart. And for some of us, we can read the little tiny microscopic line at the bottom, QPRZRQYWX. And for those of us who are more visually impaired, we say E. I see E, okay? Now, Jesus touches this man, and he sees E, okay? What do you see? I see men, they're walking around, they look like sticks. Okay, now, is he blind? No, no, he's not. He can see. But is he healed? Remember, they were in the village, and Jesus took him out of the village, out to the middle of nowhere to do this miracle. He, was not, he is not blind, but he's not healed enough to find his way home. He can see, but he can't see well. So he says, I see men, they look like trees. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't enter into the village, just go straight home. Now, I'm going to ask you guys a series of questions this morning. These are not trick questions, okay? VBS is upon us. You've all heard the joke. Two boys sitting in a VBS kids club classroom, and the teacher says, what eats acorns, lives in a tree, is brown and furry all over with a bushy tail? And the one little boy looks to his buddy and says, it's probably a squirrel, but I'm going to play it safe and go with Jesus. She asks, he answers the question, Jesus, okay? That's not what I'm doing with you guys here this morning, okay? I'm not asking you some super hyper-spiritualized question. Well, what does this mean? You're like, Jesus. The other one, sometimes the teenagers and youth group, Sunday school, little kids, the sort of go-to stock answer, if the teacher calls on you and you haven't been paying attention, you just say, Jesus, and nine times out of ten, you're right. You get in the youth group, and the teenagers will tell you, Andrew can bear witness to this, if the teacher catches you kind of not paying attention, halfway sleeping, the stock answer, nine times out of ten, you just say faith, okay? Faith. How do we obey our parents? You, son, what do you think? Oh, we got to have faith. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, okay, that's good. Good answer. And it applies in all scenarios, all situations, you know. It's 11 o'clock Sunday night. You have an English paper due tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. in English class. How are we going to get that done? Faith. Just by faith. It's always the stock answer for teenagers. Now, I'm not asking you guys any kind of a spiritualized question. Just being really straightforward here. Look at the next passage. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Now, those people who say that Jesus is just one of the prophets or John the Baptist, here's the question. Do they have vision? Are they enlightened by the Father when they identify Jesus as John the Baptist? Can they see? Faith. 
That's right. <laughs> it's not a hyper-spiritualized question. Good job, Dustin, but no, you're wrong. I'm going to have to... No, not Jesus, not Jesus. They don't, they don't see. That's right, Rob, they don't see. Now, so he says, who do people say I am? They say that you're not who you really are. Are they enlightened? No, they're not. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Here it is, rhetorical question. Not looking for a hyper-spiritualized answer. Is Peter in this moment enlightened? Yes, he is. Good, good. He's enlightened. Now, track with me to the very next passage. Peter sees, but how well does Peter see? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, this is completely identical to the passage we have in Matthew, okay? There's one thing added here that isn't in Matthew, and there's one thing added in Matthew that isn't here. Matthew records the strong rebuke that Peter gives to Jesus. Mark doesn't include that. It says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. That opening statement, what Jesus is teaching them, completely identical to what you find in the opening statement in Matthew. Okay? Verse 32, he said this plainly. Now, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in Matthew, but here it's very clear. Jesus isn't teaching them, like we've seen Jesus in so many times before, utilizing parables or metaphors or object illustration lessons. He's not couching this in any kind of mysterious expression. He is saying it plainly. He is saying it clearly. Here's what has to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The priests and the chief scribes and all these people are going to persecute me, they're going to kill me, and on the third day, don't worry guys, after I die, on the third day, I'm going to be raised. There's no ambiguity about what Jesus is saying here. He is saying it clearly. Remember, Peter has been enlightened. He can see. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, again, that's similar to what we find in Matthew. Matthew tells us the extent to which Peter began to rebuke him. Mark just says he began to rebuke him. And here's the other little detail. You know that Peter says to Jesus, hey, get over here, I've got to talk to you. And he kind of pulls him aside, and you have a conversation. He says, you're wrong, that's never going to happen, you're not going to die, you're not going to be killed, that's bogus, stop talking nonsense, you're crazy, man. Mark tells us something that Matthew doesn't. Jesus is talking to Peter, and he turns and the other 11 guys, the other apostles, they've sort of started to trickle over a bit. And he sees them. And when he sees them, he turns back to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. It's in the imperative. This is a strong rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. And he goes on to explain. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Okay, so rhetorical question. Peter, he can see. He sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very next passage. I gotta go. I gotta be crucified. Don't worry, on the third day, I'll be raised. Never happened to you. In this particular moment, does Peter see? 
Yes or no? No, he does not. He sees, he sees Jesus, and he has correctly identified Jesus as God's son. But he doesn't see well enough to take it all the way home. And this is crucial. This is very crucial. We see here in this passage that you can be enlightened, but not enlightened enough. We see here in this passage that you can get it, but not completely get it. And this is very crucial for us in terms of what Jesus is trying to say here. And there's a reason why he's trying to teach his disciples this. It's something that we need to be reminded of here in the 21st century. You can go to churches all across North America. You can go to churches all around British Columbia. I dare say you probably even go to churches here in Kamloops. Where you go in, and essentially what they say is, Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He wants what's best for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to do amazing, miraculous things in your life. And in fact, when he went to the cross, what he did on the cross is there to show you how much he loves you. And people hear that, and they think, yes, that's great. That sounds wonderful. I want a God. I want a Messiah who's my buddy, who's my friend who loves me, who cares about me, who has a great plan for my life. We like that notion. Many of those things are true. But if they're presented in that way, they're twisted. You say, wait a minute, Josh. Doesn't it say in Romans that God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Isn't Jesus going to the cross? Isn't that a demonstration of his love? It absolutely is. Make no mistake, Jesus dying on the cross, it absolutely reveals God's love for you. And there are pastors all across North America who will preach that Jesus dying on the cross is just there to show you how much he loves you. But the scriptures don't present that the purpose for why Christ went to the cross is just to show you that he loves you. That is not the driving reason for why Jesus goes to the cross. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus does love you, and he did die on the cross, and his dying on the cross is a demonstration of his love for you, but it's not the reason he went there. Peter says to Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to kick out the Romans. You're supposed to remove all the religious hypocrites. You're supposed to set up Israel as this free nation. You're supposed to be our king. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter has in mind for Jesus. Peter has in mind glory. Jesus is saying before we get to glory, there's something that needs to happen. You see, when we look at Jesus rebuking Peter at this point in time, calling Peter Satan because he doesn't have his mind set on the things of God, do you think that Peter is questioning whether or not Jesus loves him? This is a man who healed his mother-in-law, who's raised people from the dead, who's performed all kinds of miracles, many of them on relatives or cousins 
or people who just lived in the same city as Peter, people that Peter knows. This is a man that has protected them through storms on the Sea of Galilee, who has even empowered and enabled Peter to walk on water. Peter knows that Jesus loves him. And when Jesus says, I have to go to the cross, as far as Peter is concerned, that is not necessary for what Peter has in mind. Love isn't the issue. I want you to look back at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Look at that word one more time. He must suffer many things. Not, it would be really good to show people how much I love them if I suffer. Not, I want you to know that I love you, so I'm going to go die. He makes this statement, he must suffer. It is necessary. This has to happen. When Peter says, no, it doesn't, Jesus' response is, you're in line with Satan, meaning what Peter is advocating for when he says to Christ, you shouldn't need to go to the cross. Whatever Peter is saying, it's not in line with the things of God. In fact, it is completely counter, contrary and opposite to what God has in mind. He says, you're setting your, things, your mind on the things of men and not on the things of God. He begins by saying, this needs to happen. When Jesus dies on the cross, hear me all the way through, it absolutely shows you that he loves you. But if all it is is a demonstration of love, I would suggest to you that there are better demonstrations of love. He could magically make a rose appear in all of our right hands. He could instantaneously feed us such that we would never need to work for our food for the rest of our lives. He can heal every disease. He can cure every ailment. If you stop and really think about it, you know that he loves you just based on his omniscience. He knew who you would be the sins that you would commit, the ways that you would dishonor him before he ever decided to create you. And yet you're still here. There are lots of ways to come to the realization that God does love you. The cross shows you his love. But when Jesus says it's necessary for me to go to the cross, we're not talking about love. We're talking about something deeper. There are two passages. Don't flip there. Just listen. Leviticus chapter 16. Sorry, I need to find out my notes. Sorry, Leviticus 17. Verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So number one, Jesus has to die. He has to pour out his blood. And he has to do that in order to atone for our souls. Number two, don't flip there, just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 21, 
verses 22 to 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, verse 23, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There are two things that are happening on the cross. Number one, Jesus is pouring out his life. When it says that his blood is coming out of him, what it's talking about there is that he is giving his life, blood being a metonym for life. When he pours out his blood, he's giving his life, and the scriptures are very clear. The reason he's giving it is to atone for your souls. Number one, he's not just showing you that he loves you. He is atoning. He is making payment. He is paying a price that you are obligated to pay if you have ever sinned against God. Number two, the scriptures are emphatically clear. He is cursed by God. You see that clearly when he hangs on the tree. Deuteronomy says any man who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Don't leave him to the next day. A cursed man left hanging, not buried, brings defilement on the land. In Galatians, Paul makes the statement that Jesus became a curse for us, lifting our curse from us. A curse is not like if you were to be executed by being stabbed or to be murdered by being shot down in the streets. When a man is hung on the tree, the scriptures say that's a symbol of God's divine judgment. A curse is punishment that is given from on high. It is punishment that comes from the Father himself. Jesus says to Peter and all the apostles, I have to go to the cross. It is necessary. It is a demonstration of love. But the bottom line is, you guys are cursed as a result of your sin. You stand under the judgment of God, and it requires your life. Unless Jesus dies for us, making atonement for us, pouring his life out where we deserve to pour our lives out, taking the curse upon himself, which rightly belongs on us. So understand, the one thing which we can never do here at Bridge Baptist Church, there being two sides to the coin, we can never emphasize the one side to the neglect of the other side. Because if we do that, we will enlighten people about who God is, but not help them to see clearly that it's not just a God who loves them, they need Him. It's not just your fishing buddy, He is truly our Savior. When I say that, I'm saying that he loves you, but I'm saying much, much more. He loves you so much that he took a curse which rightfully did not belong to him. It belongs to us. And he died a death which rightfully he didn't deserve to die. We did so that he could atone for our souls. Jesus and Mark goes on to say, just like he does in Matthew, on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. 
if Jesus got what he deserved, that is, if there were some sin or some crime that he had committed that went unnoticed by the apostles, unrecorded for us, he would not have come out of the tomb on the third day. For he would have suffered a death which he rightly deserved to suffer. But when God raises him on the third day, he places his seal and his testimony to the fact that Jesus died not deserving death, that he suffered not deserving to suffer, and that by dying in our place, by atoning for our souls, he has destroyed the power of sin and the grasp of death forever. As we look at this text, we need to be very mindful of the fact that more and more in our gospel presentations, as we witness to our neighbors, as we invite people to church, we need to tell them, if all you hear is that Jesus loves you and he just wants to be your buddy, then you're not hearing enough to truly be rescued from your sins. You see, but you don't see well enough to make it home. And our job here at Bridge Baptist Church is to make sure that they know God loves them. So much so that he died for them, a death he didn't deserve. And the appropriate response is not only one of love towards him for what he did for us, but of desperate need, a clinging to the cross because there is no other way anybody goes to heaven apart from what Christ did for us on the cross. If you're here today, I close every sermon with this invitation. If you are here today and you have lived your life believing that Jesus is just your buddy, he's just your friend, he just likes you a lot. You're not wrong, but you're not all the way right. You see, but you don't see enough to make it home. You need him, and you need what he did on the cross. If you are here today, I'm about to close in a word of prayer. Rob is going to come and play. We give you this opportunity at the end of every worship service it seems wrong to tell men of their need for Christ and then to not give them an opportunity to cling to him. So we give you that opportunity. You don't have to take it. No one's forcing you to come down front. But you understand, Jesus says, if you don't acknowledge me before men, neither will I acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Whoever is ashamed of me, of him will I be ashamed. So we give you this time to stand up and declare your need. If you're here today and you don't know how to trust in Christ, or you haven't declared that, we give you this opportunity now. If he's speaking to your heart, we invite you to come. Let's bow for a word of prayer.